At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. All right, and we're rolling in three. Oh, hang on. Now we're rolling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we're rolling in three, two, one. Cue music. All right. After many, many technical difficulties, we have got ourselves rolling on Facebook Live for a very special edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. I am very happy to have on the show today Mr. Paul Hale, the president of the PPCLI Association and my regimental brother. Paul, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me and providing the opportunity to spread the word about mental health suicide awareness. Well, it's important, and the more we talk about it, the less the stigma is. So it's just so critical, and I have to applaud you and your efforts. Through the PPCLI Association, you've put on numerous mental health first aid courses, and I I personally think that is a fantastic venture. So uh, well done on that, and you're the first one to sort of pioneer that path for the association, so bravo. Thank you. Now, the mental health first aid courses, I was um, lucky enough to be a participant in Merit BC with you there, and that was when this show was just starting. We had all of eight episodes at the time, and now we're at 91, something like that. And um, I started the show for much the the same reason that you are pushing the, um, or offering rather, the uh, mental health first aid courses. So it's been a long journey for you. How many... Uh, what's the sit rep on the mental health first aid? Well, I guess two things. Uh, we've run eight workshops. COVID-19 has had an impact in the last year. Yes. Um, they're finally getting off the ground on virtual mental health first aid training. There's a basic me- mental health first aid training that's being done. Um, the military version or the VAC version for veterans is still in development and hopefully will be out for the 1st of April. So I'm already planning the ninth workshop on the 12th to 14th of April. I'm going to use Sherry Lachine, who was the instructor that we had in uh, Merritt, BC, back, uh, that's what, September 19th, I think? Uh, but, September uh, or August, uh, or September, October, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know you had to drive back in the snowstorm, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yes, I did. It was a doozy. Yeah. I guess just to put things in context, the reason I got involved in this was in uh, – January 16, Captain Breen Carson died by suicide. Uh, Breen, Patricia, you got the MSM, I mentioned dispatches in Afghanistan, and I mugged Breen out of the regiment in 2014. And then we did a whole bunch of internal nasal gazing, saying, how did we miss the signs? What what didn't we pick up? Uh, John Hunter uh, did the majority work. He researched what uh, Brits, Canadians, Australians, and Americans did, and he put out a 30-page paper 
on suicide awareness, suicide prevention. I took down a lot, took out a lot of the technical stuff and reduced it to 15 pages. And then in uh, June 2017, we had a mental health suicide awareness workshop as part of our annual general meeting in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And for that meeting, uh, I was lucky and that I got uh, Dr. Alex Heeper, the chief psychiatrist for Veteran Affairs, to talk. Colonel Rakesh Jetley, chief psychiatrist for the Canadian Armed Forces, to talk. Uh, Wayne Eyre, who at that time was deputy commander, chief military services. And Colin Fitzgerald, who uh, tried to commit suicide by cop. And it was a fairly intense three hours, but we went over a lot of the causes, the mental health, um, people not knowing where to go for help. And at the end of it, the association basically gave me permission to run one workshop. Uh, I believe in begging for forgiveness. I ran five workshops in the first year. Uh, we started off with one in Edmonton, then we basically went Gagetown, like uh, Victoria, uh, I've lost track of all the actual locations, but we ran five. I, I burned out uh, the bank account because the best example I can give is the uh, workshop we ran in Gagetown. We had one person from Newfoundland, two from Nova Scotia, two from PEI, one Patricia from Quebec, and five or six Patricias from New Brunswick, and about four or six other people who are not Patricias, because they also add value in the discussions. But we did it on the base. In the end, it cost us about $5,000 to run that course, because it's unrealistic to expect an individual to pay their own way, you know, like 600 bucks for a flight from Newfoundland to uh, Fredericton, for example. So it's $5,000 well spent, but at the end of the three days, you, you had an Atlantic network, and they all realize they're part of a team. And the way we do the workshop, the first two days, and we fall in the model now of Friday to Saturday, is the VAC Mental Health First Aid course, um, which basically goes over the different types of mental health illnesses, the stigma, how you can address it, and things. Like the biggest thing I've learned is it's really, really hard to listen. We're so trained to uh, give solutions to problems, but a person with a mental health issue, you can't tell them you have to do ABC. They have to be ready to do ABC. You can encourage them. And then on the third day, on the Sunday, we go over case studies of uh, people that the association has helped, where we succeeded and where we failed. Because a lot of it, you know, to be, let's be honest, no one really wants to ask someone, are you planning to commit suicide? How do you start that conversation? And to be honest, uh, I did a evidence-based review of what we did. And in the end, uh, this is 64 people that had well-documented stuff on between June 17 to uh, October 19. Only four of them indicated that they were potentially suicidal or that. The other 60 had other problems. So the majority of issues, in all honesty, were lack of peer support, social support, homelessness, marital difficulties, uh, addictions. But the big thing by running the workshops is we now have, at that point, let me just look my notes, there's 174 participants, 118 were Patricia's. So about 15% of the association has taken mental health training. So it's helped to remove some of the stigma and made people a little more comfortable in asking, how can I help, and then listening. Uh, how would you define mental health first aid, Paul? It's, I define it as 
if someone has an issue, they're sort of running in circles. And you're there as an outside source to say, how can I help? What's bothering you? Well, we're not mental health experts. It's just trying to say, okay. And then getting them to talk whatever their problem is and then say, okay, have you thought about, uh, for example, that uh, one individual who had a gambling addiction came up on social media. I chased stuff down. Uh, I went and had coffee with him because he lives here in Brampton. But a lot of it was he knew he had to take the training or the counseling, but he was extremely nervous about going there. Uh, as I found out later in the conversation, he'd been there for alcohol addiction, and gambling was the second one. I said, how did they treat you the first time? Okay. Uh, I was just reassuring him and listening to him. And at the end, he, you know, he went off, uh, did it, uh, still has issues, you know, uh, but you're there as listening. So it's, mental health, I define it as an invisible injury. Um, if you break a bone, everybody sees the cast. They know you broke your bone. They encourage you to go to physio. A mental health injury, like I said, is invisible. As I say, I, I wish you'd turn purple. Then you'd know there's something wrong. But unfortunately, you don't. And there's a couple of phrases I hate. Like the one, I know what you're feeling. I haven't got a clue what you're feeling because I'm not inside your brain. It's uh, crap. That sounds horrible. I don't know what I would do. Uh, those are more honest answers, in my, in my humble opinion. Uh, but again, it's the individual's got to talk about their stuff. And as a volunteer, it's encouraging them to uh, go seek out the help. I had an individual phone me, actually sent me an email a couple of days ago. He got PTSD, something went off. He said, Yo, I'm not in counseling. Where would you recommend I go? So, you know, he's in the local area. So I suggested that he go to a VAC OSI clinic, basically in Hamilton. I gave him the contact information. But his is different because he realized he had a problem. And then, because he knows I've been involved in so much stuff, he came out to me and said, hey, I need someone to talk to. Where can I go? You can talk to me, but I'm not a professional. However, here's the contact information for the OSI clinic in Hamilton. And... As it turns out, he, he is a VAC client, so he should have no problem getting in there. And the one promise he's made, he'll keep me informed as how things go. So you know, to me, that's a good news story. Four years ago, I wouldn't have known that the VAC uh, OSI clinic existed in Hamilton. You know, that's just a simple example. Uh, I had another one, again, about three weeks ago, where a wife phoned up saying, I'm stressed out. My husband's got to go get surgery. There's all sorts of problems. I don't know what to do. Um, so I got hold of two different people. One helped her walk through some stuff. The other one had been working in VAC, helped her sort out, I think, in her mind, the process for all the claims. And then three days later, I got a note saying, thank you. We've got the stuff we need from VAC. Everything's falling in place. Uh, the surgery is planned for February. So, you know, those are simple examples, but they had a whole bunch of different steps that I wasn't aware of when I started this journey. Or if that answers your question. It does. The, a few of the things that you said earlier on really stick out. The injury of PTSD creates disconnection, and disconnection causes the pain, the sense of you don't know where to go or, or who to talk to, and the greater the stigma, the greater that barrier is to help. And the more people like yourself put that uh, put your, your hand and say, hey, 
you know, I've had uh, some injuries myself and here's what I've done to, to try to deal with them. And here is a resource. Then people know, like, hey, I forget exactly what it is that that Paul guy said, but I bet you he knows where to go. So they see you as the beacon of light. They reach out to you to get that help. Like, Paul, what was that thing that you said again? And where do I go and where do I start? Well, you've been through it, so you know where to send them. And, of course, through Tango Romeo, I'm constantly that middleman as well and uh, keep redirecting people to the OSI clinic and to other modalities of healing. So stigma being the biggest barrier, pardon me, we have seen the stigma really change over the years. What uh, have you seen over the last five, ten years as far as the before and after of the stigma of PTSD? I think that say people are more willing to talk about it now and uh, showing more compassion and understanding. Uh, by just having that many people attend the mental health workshops. And the big thing that's also opened my eyes, when I ran the workshop in Kingston, I realized at that point only four wives had attended the workshops and two of them, their husbands canceled out just before the workshop started. So who had the problem, you know? Uh, But because of that, I also looked at the uh, National Association Board of Directors. We never had a wife on the board of directors. So that's changed. And I'm still moving that forward to make the board more inclusive. So I think it's opening up discussions, uh, like I said, 15% of the membership having mental health training. Uh, the Winnipeg branch was uh, dying on the vine. I ran a workshop there. There was 18 Patricias that attended out of the 20. Ten of them signed up for the association afterwards. They're now up. and But you now have a good, solid core of people who've had the exposure and realized there's nothing wrong with talking about it, that I'm unhappy, I'm depressed, or I don't know what to do, how to deal with A, B, C, D. Um, and I can give another example. When I talked at the Bedroom Ombudsman Council, one of the doctors there talked about how she had a patient who basically uh, refuses to leave the house. He'd take the dog out to the sidewalk, let the dog do his business, and, and run back in. said, I don't know how to get him out. I said, it's real simple. Go find four military buddies and do a patrol and bring those people in. So that means he's got to welcome four people in, talk about the patrol because he wanted to be able to walk around the block. Talk about how you walk around the block, action on co- coming in contact with a civilian or whatever. Pick a time of day. Have one guy, you know, where you can do it, be it at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, do a little phone call with the police. Say, hey, please stay away from this area for this day, day period because we're taking a guy who's afraid of leaving the house out of his house and we don't want to stress him out. But by doing that, you're putting into that person's uh, Comfort zone, perhaps, doing doing a patrol. We've all done patrols. We've all done rehearsals. And she said, I never thought about that. I said, right, you're a civilian doctor. I'm military. Um, this is what I would do. I would suggest that if the person says no, okay, back off. It's that simple. It's a really excellent, excellent example of meaningful peer support and also cultural competence in being able to speak the language. The power of peer support is being able to understand at least to some degree, how our brothers and sisters think because they think the way we think in, in many different cases. And I agree, just showing up with a few few folks and, and going for a stroll together um, and having your immediate action drills set out ahead of time. 
you know, in, in event of contact of this or contact of that, how, how do we deal with it? What's, what's our immediate action drills? And it, it's a perfect example. Um, sometimes PTSD can have you stuck. So you have a project that you know you need to get done and you just can't seem to, to, to get the ball rolling. So peer support in that case could simply be showing up and doing it with that person, whatever that activity is, whether it's cleaning out the garage, fixing a motorcycle, whatever it is. And uh, so that's just a fantastic example. Now, how would you describe the do's and don'ts of peer support, Paul? First off, be respectful. Second, do not judge, because mm. that's a mistake we all make. Um, I, you have no idea what that person's living experience was, what they uh, came across, and so it's, it's don't judge. Like don't, you know, uh, so you got to really watch your comment, and it, it's don't make a comment that's judgmental, and then be compassionate, and then I would honestly then say. Encourage the person to seek help. I, I make it very clear I'm not a mental health professional. I'm an individual who gives a damn about soldiers. But, uh, you know, if you need the help, I can help you research stuff if you're comfortable with me doing that. Um, there's different assets. And the other thing is asking the person, what do you want? Where do you want to go? You know, and... It, it may take 50 cups of coffee before a person opens up because the uh, first time we meet, I'm not going to tell you all my dark secrets because I don't know you. And it's a matter of trust. You, you gain the person's trust, and then they'll open up the doors and talk about it. So I think respectful, don't judge, and be encouraging are the ones I think of. And, and listen. And at times, the listening, you know, just a simple, yep, and and trying to read it back, saying, this is what I think I heard. Is it, did I get that right? So you know, those type of skills is what I would say. Absolutely, and it's so much easier said than done. <laughs> uh, uh, people think, oh, I, I know how to listen. I just shut up and listen. Well, there's there could be a bit more to it, and it's harder than you think, because especially as soldiers, especially in, in my opinion, as infantry soldiers, improvise, adapt, and overcome is just, in our DNA and uh, fixing the problem and, and charging straight ahead at the problem. That's just how we are wired. So to sit there and to think that you're doing nothing is, is can be painful, but you're not doing nothing. You're being there and you're, um, you're being a safe place to land for somebody. And that is absolutely huge and you can't solve the problem. So don't try. You know, uh, uh, offer support, direct them for, to the right um, uh, resources, you know, and just be there. And it doesn't have to be talking about whatever the issues are. It could it, it could just be getting them out of the house, going for that walk, like that wonderful example that you shared, or taking them fly fishing. When you get out and active, it gets you out of your head and into the activity. And simply being the person that drags somebody out of the house to go skiing or whatever it is, is a fantastic form of peer support and creates that that safe connection where people feel comfortable. And the other thing is, in some ways, you have to be prepared for the unexpected. Because once mm. people realize you're a resource, you know, twice I've, I've been blindsided with phone calls that I thought were social. 
And after about a minute, I realized, oh, no, this is a request for help because in both cases, like I said, blindsided. Yeah. Uh, individuals I knew, and all of a sudden, it's, I didn't know what was going on in their lives. And all of a sudden, they were just like, whoa. Um, so you got to be prepared for the unexpected. And again, don't judge. Now, how do you look after yourself as a peer supporter, as the guy that people are coming to for advice? That's a lot of weight to bear sometimes, as I know firsthand. Um, no. So, what are how do you how do you draw your barriers and your boundaries, Paul? Well, um, it, it's one that I've had to learn a little bit the hard way: self care. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, everybody talks about it, you know, and it's to me a lot of it sometimes is physical exercise. But the self-care, a couple of things before that is you cannot take ownership of the individual's problem. That's the first thing to watch out for, the first pitfall. Um, you can't take ownership for their gambling addiction or alcohol addiction. But, um, those are their issues. So you have to try and compartmentalize it that you do not own the problem. The individual owns the problem. You're trying to help. Um, I'm a firm believer in getting out, doing some physical exercise. Uh, you know, my wife, I know, going up basically for a 5K walk every every day. But a uh, simple example, in the summer, at one period where I felt a lot of stress, I went out for a 30-kilometer bike ride. It took me an hour and three minutes. The next day, I did the exact same with my wife. It took an hour 45. It was a lot more casual and better the second day. But the first day, I knew I was just getting rid of the frustration. And 30 kilometers in an hour was, was booted. Put it miles late. Well, but it didn't make me feel better, but I got rid of some of the stress. It was the second day doing it casually. And I think a good thing to point out too, Paul, is that both self-care and recovery is an activity, not an event. You have to actually do something. And sometimes that's the challenge. I know for myself, uh, getting my ass out of the, the house to do something I love can be a challenge. But if I get a phone call from somebody saying, hey, let's go, I'm in. And away we go. Yeah. But sometimes you need that, that little extra boost. But uh, the work that you are doing really, really matters. And um, it, it relieves a lot of pain and, and makes people safer. And um, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, uh, uh, Paul, and you're doing it for the same reason that I'm doing this show, because we give a shit about our, our brothers and sisters, and, and we're giving back uh, in any way that we can. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I put the articles in. Sorry to be a little blunter, but we cannot say we've prevented a single suicide. What I can say is that of a lot of the people we've helped, the majority are in a better place two, three months afterwards. And the road to recovery is not done in five minutes. Um, there's people still recovering 10, 15 years afterwards. You know, uh, it's, 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 it's a new normal, as they say. So you, you've got to look after yourself in many ways, but offering that friendship. And you know, out of the 64 cases we had, there were 56 males, 8 females. But uh, basically, it was uh, about 30 of them, or no, 37 were resolved just by peer support, having someone to talk to. The rest involved uh, financial assistance, addiction abuse, not done by us, but by encouraging a person to go seek, seek it. And, and in the end, uh, there's five um, that were closed off with no improvement because you know, the person doesn't return phone calls. After a while, you, know, 
can only try 20, 50 times. Yeah, that's all you can uh, do. You know, some we've lost contact with and others that are still ongoing and they'll be ongoing five, 10 years from now. So you got to be prepared to help someone or just be there as a friend. Uh, and the other one I can say is a buddy check. Uh, in one case, I did a buddy check on someone and next thing I know, about six hours later, I got an email back from saying, thank you. I finally got off my ass and contacted back. I never suggested they contact back. All I said was, how are you doing? How's life? <laughs> you know? So it, uh, that little buddy check six months later, three months later pays off just because it, it shows to the individual that someone gives a shit. That's all Somebody it is. Cares. You know, that's all it is, Paul. And, uh, and that's the power of peer support. Again, PTSD creates disconnection. So peer support bridges that and takes away a lot of the pain of PTSD because you're taking away the disconnection. And that's how it works. It's uh, absolutely important and something that all of us can do <laughs> as long as we do it with compassion and uh, we don't try to solve problems. That's, that's kind of a big deal. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for um, uh, making time to be on here today. Super appreciate it. And uh, please share it on the association page and, and away we go. So uh, for our listening audience, the entire show collection can be found in actually a few different places. OperationTraumaRecovery.org, OperationTraumaRecovery.org, which is a website that was donated by Manny Mandrusiak, a fellow that we served with. Um, or any of your podcast platforms, any of your favorite podcast platforms where you can access all the shows. And cue music. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast.